When I came in this morning, I, from a distance, I saw this strange fellow that was singing with us earlier. And you might say, who's that guy? Well, as I came closer to get to see who he was, is Dave Danielson. He was a student of mine back in 1980 in Oak Hills Christian College. And he's a good friend of Chaz. And I won't hold that against him. <laughs> but it's good to have Dave join us and uh, help lead our worship this morning, which is wonderful. Let's pray. Father, always we come to you with needs on Sunday mornings. Some of us just need some rest. Some of them just need a word from the Lord that gives us encouragement, Father, and we all desperately need encouragement as we come. And Father, encouragement also challenges us to realize how important it is to follow you. So Father, as we come together this morning, Father, may as we leave, may there be some powerful reality that comes from our time together as you work in the lives of your special people. Amen. Each year, we need to turn our attention to the Old, or I would rather call it the Other Testament. Sometimes when we refer to it as the Old Testament, it has certain kind of connotations that might not be good. And so I think we're better off to call it the Other Testament, and I love the opportunity to be able to delve back into the Old Testament. I was reading the book the other day where the writer of the book said on a particular subject, he said, now that Christ came, he came to fulfill all the law and the Old Testament, and therefore we don't need the Old Testament anymore because we have Christ. And I want to encourage you to really take a hard look at a statement like that. And is that really true? Now that Christ has come, we no longer have to worry about the Old Testament. We can just kind of set it aside. What I find is rather interesting is that the New Testament covers all the themes of the Old Testament. The judgment themes, the moral themes, and I don't think it's wise for us just to simply say we can sweep aside the Old Testament. But it is true, Jesus came to fulfill, which means bring the Old Testament to its fullest understanding. But that does not mean to do away with it. In fact, all of Jesus, you can trace every teaching every instance of Jesus' life, you can trace it back to the Old Testament. For him, as he unpacked the scrolls on the Sabbath, he was unpacking the Old Testament, the writings of the great people of the Old Testament. Paul, the great apostle, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament, as he was making a defense to the Roman officials in the book of Acts, he says, I believe firmly in the, old, the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. And while it's true we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore, we don't have to do the ceremonial law, that doesn't mean that the principles of those offerings is not useful for us. I'm so grateful that Jesus came as both the priest who offers the offering and the offering itself. We also don't have to practice in principle the dietary laws. We don't have to abide by those as Jesus harkens back before the law, probably to the precepts in, in the book of Genesis. So there's no need for us to, to follow very meticulously the dietary laws. However, the dietary laws have a lot to say to us in principle. And there's all kinds of underlying principles that we see. There's always an underlying principle in what is written in the Old Testament, and it is there for our good. It's there for our good. I want you to understand that it's there for our good. The parameters that God sets are there for our good. Some are difficult. Some are very difficult to understand the underlying principle. I understand that. But that's what we look for because it has relevance today. 
Even the book of Leviticus. We were reading through the book of Leviticus with the Bible reading, and there was a lot of yuck going on in that book. However, 37 times we know of 37 for sure that the book of Leviticus is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus and Paul and Peter and others quote extensively from the Old Testament, most notably the Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. They quoted from the law and the writings and the prophets. Now, as we turn our attention to boil it down to the wisdom literature that we're going to look at, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called the writings or the scrolls, and the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the books of wisdom. These wonderful books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, are great, great books for us. For we see in the book of Job, as we begin, he's probably one of the oldest books written, it's very archaic in its Hebrew. It deals with one of the most important issues in life. Why do we worship God? That's what the book of Job is all about. It asks the fundamental question, why do we worship God? Do we worship God for all the good things he gives to us and all the blessings we receive, or do we worship God because he's God? The book of Psalms goes deeply into our lives because we identify with the experiences of the psalmist as they pour out their heart to God in all kinds of circumstances, some of them agonizing. In almost every psalm at the end comes to some affirmation, powerful affirmation of the very character of God that was needed for that particular moment. We have the great book of Ecclesiastes, which probes life and comes repeatedly to a conclusion that there's the best thing to do is to eat and to drink and enjoy life. It's a gift from God. It's not a, a, a pessimistic book and its conclusion. It's not the frivolous eating and drinking of the New Testament writers of Paul, but it's to enjoy life because it's a gracious gift given to us. And we should fear him and obey him and live in that realm. In the great Song of Songs, which deals with the issue of a relationship there, there's two theories on that book, but there's a relationship there that is consummated and comes together in that great book of the Song of Songs. And as a whole body of literature, it gives us immense amount of information and materials and, and teachings and truth that is relevant to our lives today. And the wisdom literature was seen in many other cultures of the time, in Egypt and Babylon, just to mention a few notable ones. It was a common cultural form of literature of the day. And Israel's wisdom and poetic writings are not rhythmic like English poetry, but conceptual parallelism. Concepts lied alongside each other with saying the same thing or in contrast or, or building on one another. It builds conceptually, and it's powerful that we look at this great book. But there's a lot of modern Proverbs that we have today. Let me give you a few. Let me just give you a few to ponder here about life. Everything is coming your way, then you're in the wrong lane. Growing old is mandatory. Growing up, definitely optional. Wise men don't need advice. Fools won't take it. If you think education is expensive, try ignorance. When you're thirsty, it's too late to think about digging a well. Experience is that marvelous thing that enables you to recognize a mistake when you make it again. <laughs> Isn't that a great one? Choose your wife as you wish your children to be. There's no difference between a wise man and a fool when it comes to falling in love. How about that one? To quarrel with a drunk is to wrong a man who is not even there. Think about that one. A closed mouth 
catches no flies, and finally he who laughs last thinks slowest. And we go on and on and on with all kinds of proverbial statements in our culture and culture all throughout time. But we want to zero in on the book of Proverbs, the wisdom for the ancient world and wisdom intended for us today. So turn to Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 as we introduce the book from the other testament. And we just read that. Holly just read that for us, that great passage. And what I want to do is just impact a little bit of the introductory to get us going as we look at those great subjects as the week's ahead of us. But I want to say to you, in a Jewish context of the Old Testament, the wisdom is the skill of effectively navigating our lives. That's really what it is. It's a skill we acquire to navigate our lives effectively in our everyday experiences. Let me give you an example of a contrast. This is from Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, there was a, a, a collision of cultures in way that people conceptualized life and lived. Between the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world, there was a very different conception. In the Greco-Roman world, we found out because of the leisure that was afforded men in that time, and it was leisure. Everybody else, the servants and the, the women were doing the work, and they sat around and pondered and discussed the latest philosophical concepts, and we see that in Acts 17. But the Jewish culture, I think, is more correct, is the person of that conception would be an utter failure. Our thinking has to translate in a Jewish conception to everyday life. It has to work. It has to be effective. It's practical wisdom that the artisans gain in their trade and they utilize their trade effectively. It's in the parents who parent their children with wisdom and care. It's in our relationships that people share in the ancient world together through wise relational connections. It is not about sitting around philosophically and thinking, even though there's a place for that. It's about living life in relationship with God in the everyday experiences of our lives. This is what wisdom is, the skill to effectively navigate our lives each day. In verse 1, it identifies an author as Solomon, the son of David. It's rather interesting that he doesn't start his Proverbs until chapter 10. Solomon isn't the only writer of the book of Proverbs. It's a collection of all kinds of wise sayings from many people that was collected. But the most notable person of all would be Solomon. And in the ancient times, in the Old Testament, he would identify him because you want to draw attention to the wisest person of the day. He wasn't the only author. It's like in the prophets, for example, when you have two prophets that are speaking, like, for example, the coming of John the Baptist, you have two prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, both quoting and it identifies Isaiah as the author. Why Isaiah? Because Isaiah is the dominant person, the dominant prophet. And so he gets ascribed that quote to him. So Solomon is the most notable person. Verses 2 through 6 talk about the results of wisdom in our lives. How we effectively navigate. And he essentially boiled down these verses to two things. First of all, it's, it's mental discernment. There is a place, of course, in wisdom to be thinking wisely. The meaning of discernment is the ability to acquire direction, to acquire understanding, to perceive and evaluate what's going on around you, and the ability to be able to make judgments and decisions. That's what discernment is. When we raise our children, one of the most important things we want to do is to teach them the best we can discernment. It's not just about a collection of biblical facts. When I grew up in my home, there was many, many biblical facts that were thrown out all the time. And biblical facts are very, very important. 
A lot of times, my wife and I at night, we play phase 10. And she's beating me all the time. I can't. And when I, she does all the time, I threaten. Now we're going to play Bible trivia. And we'll see who wins then, even though she's knowledgeable too. But you have to memorize the precepts of God, but it's more than just memorizing facts. You've got to see how you take that and make it work in life. And when I was growing up, all the significant decisions until I was 18 were made by my parents. They really were. My mom ran things well, and she made all the major decisions. And at age 18, the door was there, you were drop-kicked, and out you go. Make it happen at 18 years old. How do we bring together these facts to a worldview that explains life and that we can work for discernment? This is the call of the wisdom teacher. My first year of college, I was very ill and washed out, and I, I came home, wanted to stay at home. It was very apparent I wasn't welcome. She had five other kids coming after me. It was very apparent that I needed to get out and make it work. Make it work. Discernment. Discernment. Here's a court case you know in the news, 30-year-old man and is bringing suit, or which, who's suing who, I don't know, to get out of the house. And finally, the court had to decide that he has to get out of the house. He's 30 years old, for pity's sake. We've got to make it work. We've got to take these facts, and we've got to give opportunities for our kids to be able to experience things, even with the opportunity of failure, because that's how you learn discernment. How does the Christian faith work? How do we make this practical and experiential faith work? Make decisions, sink or swim, and learn. This great book we're going to study helps us to become discerning and to become wise. But it's not just mental discernment, it's moral skillfulness. In culture, this call is so central. Moral skillfulness. Many of the values of our culture today clash with the beliefs that are rooted in the Bible. We must understand that. Righteousness is this moral skill. The message says, know how to live well and right. How to live justly and fairly for all ages and all circumstances of life. Famous geneticist William French Anderson was convicted of child molestation. In a press conference, his attorney said, nothing about having a 176 IQ means you have good judgment. And it's about judgment. It's about making the truths of God work in life. Moral skillfulness. And what he's saying to us is we have to have mental discernment and moral skillfulness in our lives. But there's a big catch, folks. There's a huge catch in these verses. It's a very huge catch. Foundational wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. It's found in the fear of the Lord. And it says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise. There's five categories of fools in the book of Proverbs, and every one of them takes a step farther away from God. One of the lower levels says, they say in their heart, the fool says, there is no God. That's not a philosophical statement. It's a moral statement. Get God out of my life, because then I can do whatever I want. And so we kick God out in one of the lower levels of the fools. Just like Romans chapter 1, the steps that are made when one walks away from God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, and fools despise the carrier of wisdom and instruction as well, folks. It's not just being a moral, virtuous per- purpose, it's a person. It's not about moralism, the book of Proverbs. It can only work in a relationship with God. It then becomes relevant to us. 
The book is riddled with relational connections with God. The Christian life cannot be lived effectively without a deep and abiding relationship with God. And for us, it's found through our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you have chosen not to follow Jesus, don't read Proverbs. Go read the Gospel of John. Confront first your need for the Savior. Come your need for him. And once you enter into a relationship, all of a sudden this book of Proverbs will unfold for you. It's not just out a moralism or a performance Christianity. It's much deeper. It's about a relationship. The fear of God has a component of dread. That principle is more used of fear, fear in the New Testament of dread than the Old. Jesus says, our Savior, the loving Savior Jesus says this, don't fear Satan, fear the one who can throw you into hell. That's God. Fear him is what Jesus says to us. And these concepts find their meaning in the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? Let me identify just a few things about the fear of the Lord for you this morning. First of all, it's the awe of God. The message says, bow down to God. This is this, the awe of God. The fear of God is this awesomeness of God, a deep respect for the living God. The biblical fear runs the gamut from a mild respect through a deep, abiding, and reverential awe to a sheer terror, which can cause your skin to crawl, your hair to stand on end, your body even faints and collapses in the presence of living God. And we see that in biblical personages. Jesus cannot be our friend unless you have a deep respect for our awesome God. Jesus cannot be your friend. We must first have understand our awesome God before he becomes a friend to us. In this book, if you want wisdom, folks, it starts with this unbelievable awe in the presence of God. That doesn't stop there. It's all about moral reverence. Moral reverence. C.S. Lewis writing God in the Dock says, moral collapse follows upon spiritual collapse. If we don't have the relationship with God, we're not in awe in the presence of God. We're not walking with him. Moral collapse follows spiritual collapse. In this book, he's so concerned about moral reverence before God. We're losing such this idea of moral reverence in the churches today. We've got to be serious about making wise moral decisions because we so love God and desire to walk according to his will. Moral reverence. One of the characters of the Old Testament I love is the character of Enoch. Oh, Enoch is fantastic. There's only one statement made about him. And in the New Testament, another statement in Hebrews 7, or 11. If this man, of all the people who lived and died in chapter 5 of Genesis, the, the, the really genealogy of death, there's one guy. There's two, actually, Noah, but there's one guy identified in the genealogies, and it's Enoch. And it said he walked with God, and God took him. In the book of Hebrews, it says this man was such a, in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, one of those special people, and it says because he sought to please God in everything he did. Here's a man of all the destruction that was going on at the time of Noah. He didn't matter to Enoch what the lifestyle was of the perverse culture of Noah's age. He walked with God, and he served him faithfully, moral reverence for God. It's the whole counsel of God. It's the entire Bible of God, not cherry-picking. 
We affirm only the passage of the Bible that fits our desired narrative in life. We can't do that. We need to be aware, however, of our biases and try not to let them influence what the Bible says because pure objectivity is an illusion. But the totality of the biblical message we need to grab a hold of, and Proverbs is part of that, that helps us make wise, reverent, moral choices in society. And Proverbs will be a great place for us to make wise moral decisions. And finally, that idea of the fear of the Lord is willful submission. The fear of the Lord has this a component. It's not just being in awe of God and stop there or making wise decisions morally. It's willfully submitting ourselves to the living God. Folks, the book of Proverbs assumes that we've signed on with God. We've signed on with him. In the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, strength, your soul and as much as you can your strength. And then it becomes part of everyday experience. You teach your children and you, you live it out in all the dimensions of the life that's spelled out in chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy. Because we sign on to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our strength and all our mind. I often refer to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I just cannot enough read that passage in the life of the church. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, always by the mercy of God, that you present yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice, your whole being, which is reasonable in light of what God has done for you. It's the reasonable thing to do. And then do not be conformed to this world. There's the moral reverence, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will know what the will of God, this good will of the living God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, Paul says, is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to good works, which God has prepared for us beforehand that we ought to walk with him. This idea of will submission is necessary for us to be a person who understands the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, awestruck, making wise, reverent moral decisions, realizing that we sign on with God. When we come to Christ, we sign on with him, and we willfully submit to him. That's where this book is going to unpack for you. And if you're not there, it's going to become simply a bunch of moral behavior you think you need to do, and we'll miss the whole point. So I encourage you on the journey through Proverbs in the next five Sundays. I encourage you to read a chapter of the book of Proverbs every day, 31 days, essentially the time when she will cover this fantastic book. One chapter a day. Maybe you already have your Bible reading. I'm in the book of Acts. Maybe I'll delge back. I'm going to be studying it. But one chapter a day. And then I want you to ask, where is your relationship with God? Do you fear him? Do you have this kind of understanding that, that the wisdom teacher wants us to understand about the fear of the Lord? Do you really fear him? Because if you don't, you can't unpack this book. And as you go through this book, it's a comprehensive book on all aspects of our lives. When you come across a truth that rings true, what you need to do is seek to live it out. Because that's pleasing. That's pleasing to our awesome and our loving God. It's pleasing to him. We'll start the journey together. Let's pray. 
Father, we need you. Father, we recognize in life that uh, when we distance ourselves from you, we distance ourselves from the truth and the wisdom of God. Father, there's ever a time when we need to realize what it means to walk with you, it's now. The wonderful audience of one, that all that matters, Father, is you. So, Father, help us as we navigate through this great book. Father, as we think about how we speak and and our emotions of anger, and as we unpack these subjects, Father, we just ask for your spirit to give us relevance, and, Father, give us a spirit and heart that says when we walk through the doors of this place, we are going to walk with you. Amen.